Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by our friends over at Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and it just takes three easy steps. So just go to mercurymile.com. Create your profile and choose your sizes and preferences. And then Mercury Mile and their personalized stylists will send you out a customized box just made for you. So you're going to get a bunch of goodies, some nutrition, also plenty of gear. And it's amazing. So these boxes are about the size of a shoebox, maybe a little bit bigger. And you open it up and there's like 10 to 12 things in there. It really is amazing how much stuff they put in there. And it's all good stuff and it's very affordable so this is not a subscription box service you just order a box whenever you want one going to mercurymile.com and hey if you use promo code rambling runner 10 at checkout it saves you 10 bucks and it helps the show so what's better than that so mercurymile.com rambling runner 10 so today's guest on the show is tony post so tony post is somebody who i've known about for a long time but not necessarily by name. So if you've read the book Born to Run by Chris McDougal, you may recall in that book that he talks about this shoe company exec who used to work for Rockport Shoes, who as basically an advertising gimmick ran uh, a marathon in these basically casual dress shoes that you normally would, like a male would wear to work. And it was like this funny story about how, like, look how silly running shoes are. You can run a marathon in dress shoes type stuff. Well, that gentleman is our guest today, Tony Post. So he has done a bunch of cool stuff, has been part of the running scene for a very long time, not only as a college runner who started out actually as a college golfer, oddly enough, but also someone who's been in the running scene because of his own running ability and bouncing around in the shoe industry. So he was one of the first people to work for Vibram and then went on to start his own running shoe company, Topo Athletic. And as part of this, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. Um, actually, after the show, I got uh, a message from one of Tony's employees and they said, hey, you love being on the show and we're going to do a giveaway with some of your uh, some of your listeners. So be on the lookout. We're going to post the giveaway stuff after this podcast. This is not at all why I'm, in, why I'm interviewing Tony. In fact, these shoes aren't even going to me. They're going to one of you. But I do want to give you a heads up that that's coming down the pike. Um, but it was because this conversation went so well with such an interesting individual uh, who's really doing amazing things. He's kind of like the running shoe version of Richard Branson. He does have all just, just wonderful, crazy ideas. He's had a, has a, uh, a rich and storied athletic career and has seen it from the business side, too. So we talk a lot of different things in this episode, and I know you're going to enjoy it, even if you didn't know that you knew Tony Post before listening. So hope you like this episode with Tony. Hello, Tony, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. So you are the founder of Topo Athletic. And I got to be honest, I hadn't heard of Topo Athletic until I saw actually an Instagram ad for your running shoes. And I remember being like, whoa, what is this? I had never heard of it. And I actually went out and got a pair of the ST2s, oh, which is which is kind of the the lighter the lighter version, I guess, of some of your some of your shoes, uh, of some of your road shoes, and 
I loved them. They were super light. My goodness. I mean, I, I kind of use them for track workouts and some tempo work, um, but they were super light. Yeah, that's great. I like the ST2 also. It's a, it's a light, fast, really comfortable platform. Uh, it is a zero drop shoe, so not everybody loves zero drop, but, and it's a little more on the minimal side for us, uh, but I, I love that shoe. Yeah, see, I like the, um, I'm kind of in between the minimalist and kind of the traditional, but I, the zero drop is definitely to my liking. That's for sure. So, like, so, so whether it's your shoes or ultras, they're definitely a good fit for me kind of on either end. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So thanks so, thanks so much for coming on. I love your story because there's so many points where, while I've kind of known of you, I guess for a long time, but maybe you didn't know your name because you've kind of been in, the zeitgeist of just the running kind of the running landscape for a while, um, especially recently in the last 15 years. But before we get into that, I love the college story, how here you are, someone who's been running forever, very much in the running community. And yet you went to college on a golf scholarship. Yeah, that's right. I was actually a, a pretty good golfer in high school and uh, grew up in Colorado and went to University of Tulsa in Oklahoma uh, on a golf scholarship. So just a partial scholarship. It wasn't a full ride. It was just I was invited and uh, awarded a partial scholarship to start. Right. And usually there aren't many people in the golf world that are on full rides in the, in the college sports world. I work in college sports. and I know that's usually one of the programs that aren't exactly fully funded from a scholarship perspective. Um, but even with that being said, so you went to college with golf dreams. How did that shift to, you know, track and cross country for you? Well, it was a funny thing. So my roommate was actually a track athlete and runner, and I'd always been pretty fit. And, you know, I played a variety of sports in high school, and and he got me into running right off the bat freshman year. And, um, and as it turned out, as luck would have it, my sophomore year, I did not make the, the team, the golf team. Um, you know, maybe a little too much college got in the way, and... Uh, and so I just, I kept running. So I'd been running for a couple of years and he said, you know, there's an AAU meet coming up. You should, uh, try out for that and, and, you know, run in that meet and see how you do. It'd be kind of like a fun test. And I think he took it as, you know, he was helping me learn about how to do speed work and, and things like that. So I ran the two mile at an AAU meet and ended up winning. And then, um, went on to another meet where I ran the mile. I wasn't quite as good at the mile, but the, the, uh, the track coach for the university happened to be there and saw me run that race, which I won that race also. And, and, uh, it was after that, he asked me if I wanted to join the team. So that's, that's how I got onto university of Tulsa track team. That's hysterical. It's funny that you just didn't like have a conversation with him that he just kind of had like happen upon you at a race even though you were already a student on his campus. Yeah, it was a funny thing. I think, you know, they're always looking, because you're competing in those races against, you know, all different age groups. There could be kids in high school, uh, other, you know, people past college. So I think, you know, anybody who's kind of living in that world, it's just a fun thing to attend. And, and you might find an athlete along the way who, who might join your team. Right. Now, the AAU 
um, as an organization or is primarily in other sports now, like basketball and baseball, they're heavy in. Um, but anyone who's followed running's history, especially kind of the Steve Prefontaine story is kind of the glorified version of this, knows a little bit about the AAU um, back in you know this, this time yeah. period. So what was it like? What is the difference between an AAU race and a normal race? Like how would you categorize an AAU race and putting it in like in today's terms or making it like a comparison, um, you know, right now? You know, it was, um, I think, you know, AAU was, uh, I guess it was amateur athletic union and so you had to join the aau you had to be a member and it allowed you to compete against other people and it would be frankly all different levels you know you might have people who were masters runners uh, that were running in masters races or you know people in an open division like i was running in there was a woman um, who was actually a gold medalist who ran that same day in the aau meet a woman named madeline manning mims you may remember her this goes back you know she was probably in her mid thirties, but she was a former gold medalist in the 800 meters. Wow. And uh, so you, you know, you draw all different levels of people in those races back in those days. Okay. So it was, so it's almost like, like a really hyped up road race from like the terms of the talent. You can get some pretty high end people at these races. Um, I, so you have, so for a track uh, race though, it almost seems like getting such disparate, groups of people would be like a nav- like a hard thing to navigate from someone actually running I say coordinating the race right you got like an olympian and then you have like joe schmo runner all on the same track in one day that seems like even you know a pretty big headache for someone trying to organize that race yeah it might have been i mean it was a long time ago and uh it, it was just fun to be a part of it you know i just i liked it i was um kind of discovering the sport at the time you know it, I liked competition and it was a, a a place where you could, you know, go to an event like that. And you probably weren't going to be, keep in mind, this is Tulsa, Oklahoma back in the late seventies, early eighties. So you probably weren't going to run across, you know, some other world-class runner. Uh, Madeline Manning Mims at the time, I think lived in town and that's why she competed in that race. But, you know, you'd get, you'd get some pretty good runners. I mean, uh, University of Arkansas was pretty close and uh, they were always a top five nationally in cross country and, and track back then. So, you know, occasionally you'd have to compete against really high level people. Yeah, shoot. And they still are there. I mean, that obviously is one of the best programs in the country year in and year out in both of those sports. So what was it like for you as kind of like an unrecruited athlete? in the division one running world, like how did, how did you take two different events and which ones did you end up specializing in? So, um, you know, I ran the 5,000 meters mostly. Um, that was kind of the event that I would run outdoors. I only was able to run for two years in college because, um, that's all I had left in terms of eligibility. So I ran my junior and senior year. Um, and occasionally, you know, you'd have an invitational where you could run at 10,000 meters, Um, but, and then indoors every once in a while, I'd have to run something shorter. And I would dread that because, you know, there were some really fast people if you had to run a mile or, you know, or a relay race of some type where you had to run a shorter leg. And what was it like in terms of building up your mileage to kind of get thrown into 
a college training program coming from a completely different sport with very different physical needs. Our coach was pretty good that way. I mean, I was probably running 40 or 50 miles a week already. And so I don't think I, at that time, I don't think I ever ran more than probably 70 miles a week would have been a lot. And, um, you know, he was respectful of kind of where we were at and didn't push us so hard. You know, back then, I think people were had more of a tendency to put in bigger miles. You know, you'd read about people who were running 140 miles a week. His philosophy was a little different. He just he was great as a coach because he believed more in quality than quantity at that time. And and that kind of stuck with me. Well, especially given your circumstances, it would have been pretty tough to build up to like 100, 120 yeah, miles. Coming from I think 40. I would have gotten injured for sure. So, um, and I don't know that that would have helped me as a 5,000 meter runner at the time either. Oh, that's interesting, right? Because you have even, even today, you see milers will might put in like 90 mile weeks because so much of this can be dependent on someone's own physical needs and dimensions and what they're good at yeah. naturally. Yeah. So what was the, for you, after you finished college, you had two years of running under your belt, and then you moved to the North Shore of Boston, That's right. right. And so um, my girlfriend was uh, living in New England at the time, and she kind of convinced me to come to this area, uh, to New England, and and, uh, it was a chance to train with better runners. So this is, you know, kind of early 80s, um, and there were three places that probably had a good group of of pretty good runners at that time. So I was a decent regional college runner in a D1 program, but I wanted to see what would happen if I trained and competed against a little higher level athletes. And you could go to Boulder, Colorado back then. Frank Shorter kind of started a group that was running in that area that were really good. Of course, Oregon, you know, kind of following the Prefontaine legend, as you mentioned, Nike being out there too, you know, that a lot of a lot of runners ended up in that area. And New England was another place where you could go and train with really top-level people. Bill Rogers at the time was really kind of entering the top of his game. You know, he'd already won Boston and New York several times. The guy was putting in big miles every week, competing in this Diet Pepsi series where he'd have to compete on the weekends and still running big miles and still winning, it seemed like, New York and Boston every year. And so... A lot of people in this area, you know, kind of moved to this area, um, and and New England was one of those places that had quite a few good runners. That is like one of like the the times in running history that has such a uh, mythological connection to it. You know, especially I'm a native Rhode Islander, and you hear so much about that era in terms of you know there were like two eighteen marathoners everywhere, <laughs> seemingly in the Boston area. So. You know, I know you transitioned to the marathon as well. Did you end up latching on to like a running group to kind of get those miles in? Or how did that work from a social perspective in terms of getting your miles in, but also being a part of this amazing scene? Yeah, it was fun. You know, I, I was lucky enough to, so I took a job that allowed me to run. I uh, took a job in college. I had worked in restaurants a lot and I took a job as a restaurant manager, an assistant manager to start and, Uh, and then became the manager. And so it allowed me to get two workouts in before I'd have to start my shift, usually around, you know, 3.30 or 4 o'clock. So I'd get up and do a morning run and then usually do another run in the afternoon before work. 
And so, I, you know, I, I was probably like a lot of people, though. I tried to do too much too soon, ended up being injured too often, um, you know, just trying to improve. And as runners, I think we have a tendency to always kind of push ourselves to the very limit. And sometimes, you know, that's not the best thing. Right. Was there some sort of kind of like understood peer pressure at that time as well, given the state of running in that community? Did you feel like a pressure to kind of get to a certain standard? I did feel a little bit of pressure to do that, but it was a great challenge. I mean, I didn't mind. Uh, We had a guy, uh, I I don't know if you would know this name, Paul Gorman was one of the runners in our group. So there was a group of about five or six of us that were all pretty good, you know, people who would run anywhere from, you know, we had one guy that was a sub four minute miler. Paul had run uh, sub 23 minutes for five miles. I think he PR'd around 20, or something like that. And back then that was pretty fast. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was fun because, you know, you could see people like that that were breaking through and it was encouraging. And you just felt like if you, if you did the work and you put your time in that you could also achieve the same kind of results. And you mentioned your college coach's training philosophy. Did you stick with that when you moved to the Boston area? or did that I change think it did change. You know, I probably did feel pressure to run more miles. So there was about a three or four year period where I averaged, I think, about 110 miles a week was kind of my standard. And, uh, you know, everybody's different. I think everybody's got a different tolerance level. Uh, there were people that were running a lot more than that who were able to stay healthy. But in my case, it seemed like I was always, you know, kind of on the verge of some injury or it was rare that I would be in a position where everything was working just right. And, you know, I could really, you know, run a fast race. And also, you know, 110 miles can be, can mean a lot of different things, right? It depends on how many hard miles you put into those. Yeah, that's right. Like were you following like the kind of that 80, 20 rule of 80%, you know, easy runs, 20% hard runs, or how did that work out for you? I think that's a great point because, you know, what was, what we used to do was just, we felt the need to put the miles in, you know, you were recording into a log more than anything else. And, and the quality of that work kind of got missed along the way. And there were probably plenty of days where I could have taken, you know, missed a workout or taken a day or two off. And I don't think it would have hurt me at all. In fact, it might've even, you know, made the quality of the the hard workouts better but you know those are hard lessons to learn when you're young and you're just trying to improve and you you know you probably think I just gotta I've got to push harder and I don't know that that's always the best advice yeah absolutely that's so true because there is that that feeling of you know if you're injured it's almost becomes this like this like cycle of injury because then you get injured and then you want to get back to where you were with which then leads to another injury, which then kind of around and around yeah. you go as opposed to just, you know, cutting short a season saying, okay, I need to get to hundred percent before I can really make this happen or else I'm just going to be perpetually in this cycle. Yeah. And I, I'm always, uh, you know, an admirer of people who can balance, you know, all those different aspects of your life. I mean, there's a lot of time involved in that. And if you're married or have a family, you know, that's time away from, you know, your contributions or spending time with them. So, 
you know, eventually I just had to make a decision that after three or four years, you know, I had improved quite a bit and gotten to a good level, but I also knew that I was more interested in, in pursuing a career. I'd started to work at the Rockport company around that time and, and was interested in uh, learning more about the shoe business and the shoe industry in general. And so, you know, your, your priorities change. For sure. And Rockport is mainly, was it, I don't know what it was then, but I know now it's kind of like the casual dress shoes. Yeah, I think what was genre. unique at the time is Rockport was the first casual shoe company to use athletic shoe technology inside. And so it was a small privately held company uh, here in Massachusetts. And I had actually heard about it because Bill Rogers was a spokesperson for the company. And so they had an ad where they said, you know, these are the shoes that Bill wears when he's not working. And back then, you know, it was kind of a joke because Bill's job was to run. And so everybody else, you know, they would wear running shoes when they were not working. And so it was kind of a fun play on that. So that's when I first right, first right. heard about the brand. And that kind of gave it some credibility in my mind, I suppose, at that time. And, and, uh, and that's how I ended up entering the shoe business. I love it. And again, as a, as a Rhode Islander, I've always been familiar with Rockport, but I think this is great. So, so moving into your Rockport days, I found out about this. I swear, I think it was in Born to Run. There's this like, there's this anecdote and I don't think you're even attributed. Your name is attributed in the book. I'm not, I can't remember, but they talk about how an individual worked for Rockport and in an effort to kind of drum up support and notoriety for the company ran the New York and London marathons in 1990, 92 in the dress shoes. And that yeah, was you. that's right. So that was really fun. The, the fun story behind that was, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to become the first product manager for Rockport in men's shoes. And, um, you know, we were constantly trying and testing new ideas, but, you know, you spend all day kind of sitting at a desk or walking to a meeting. You, you're not really getting a chance to put the shoes through their paces. So what I started to do was to run in different models of shoes that we were working on um, at lunchtime. And uh, it, it, was, it was kind of interesting. I came back from a run in our dress shoes, which had been, you know, actually on the market for a little bit. But um, I came back and I said, wow, these are so comfortable. You know, I probably could run a marathon. And I said it kind of tongue in cheek. And there were a couple people there. And our marketing director was one of the people. And he said, really, you think you could run a marathon? And then it was kind of I was I, I said, well, yeah, I suppose so. You know, I, I, I think, you know, I wasn't treating it as seriously as he was, but he had the vision to see this was a really great idea. This kind of, you know, left-handed comment I made. And, um, and so that's how, that's how the idea was born. We were really close to doing it. And right at that time was when the company was being purchased by Reebok. And, uh, unfortunately Paul Fireman caught wind of it and said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, that, that reminds me of the guy, you know, wearing a bear suit or, you know, running with a beer can, you know, five feet in front of his face, chasing it the whole race. It seems too gimmicky. So, so I was ready to do it and it, and the, uh, it got canceled. Um, but then our, our VP of marketing, uh, who was also my boss headed up, you know, all the product and marketing about a year later, he said, you know what, that was a great idea. Let's just do it. And, 
And so that's how that idea ended up getting executed. Well, not only that, did you train in these things? Or did you just, just wear so, race So, you know, I, I, I trained, but not a lot. And so the funny thing was, I was pretty ready for the race. And then this was like, probably, I think it was six weeks before the New York City Marathon. He said, let's just do it. <laughs> and I said, you know, oh, what I, a haven't, build up. <laughs> I haven't really been training at this stage. You know, I'm probably running mostly for fitness, you know, 40 miles a week, something like that. And six weeks isn't very long to get ready for a marathon. And so I, you know, I did the best I could to get ready for that one. And it it was fun, but it also happened to be one of those New Yorks that was probably close to 90 degrees, you know, 75% humidity. It was a, it was a pretty tough race to run in, but, uh, but I enjoyed it. It was, it was still a fun thing to be able to do. Now, what was your time for that? So in that first one in New York, I actually ran a 3.02. And so it was the first time I'd ever gone over three hours. I was so discouraged. But it was a super hot day. And, you know, I, I wanted to be kind of cautious because they were filming a commercial. And I thought, well, the worst thing is if I had to drop out or something like that. So, um, so I felt a lot of pressure to make sure that, uh, you know, I was in decent uh, place to finish. And then at London, didn't you run like a two? Yeah. So then I said, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be defined by, you know, not that there's anything, you know, first of all, anybody who finishes a marathon or, or tries that, you know, kudos to them. Uh, I've run a few of them and I have enough respect to know that frankly, the longer you're out there, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. So, um, and so for London, I wanted to run in dress sports again. We were launching Rockport in Europe at the time. So as part of the European launch, and that one I had a little more of a chance to train in. So I ran a 249 in London in the dress shoes. I love it that you did it in London, like Richard Branson's home. This is such like a Richard Branson marketing technique. That yeah, it was fun. And it, what a great race. London was fun. The, you know, the last few miles for anybody who's done that, you know, it was really a spectacular race through all the, you know, historical buildings and sites. And it was, uh, it was great. So during that time, so, so post running those marathons and then prior to starting your work at Vibram, what did you wear when you were running? Because this is the kind of the time frame that a lot of people look at is where like, you know, you've got the, the chunky soled shoes with the huge offset between the heel and the toe were pretty much the standard. You didn't, didn't seem like there were a lot of alternatives in that range. No, well, I experimented a bit, you know, first of all, we were bought by Reebok. So of course, you know, we were supposed to be wearing Reebok shoes if we were wearing athletic shoes. I, I genuinely did run in a lot of different rock ports. I mean, I ran in, we, we created at Rockport when I was there, we were so inspired by the, the, uh, Taramara Indians running in their sandals that we actually created a sandal that I ended up running in a few, a few different times. So I tried all different things, you know, to me, it was just a chance to experiment, kind of mix my love of running with the idea of creating shoes that were not necessarily designed to be running shoes, but shoes you could run in. Oh, well, well put. That, that is definitely an interesting turn of phrase because there are, there is, some distinctions there, but maybe not as drastic as one might assume, especially for someone who's just doing it casually. 
Yeah, that's right. It was, it was, so a lot of my running, as I said, that's, that's a true story. I mean, I used to run in all different types of products at lunchtime. In fact, there were a lot of times that I'd have two different shoes on. I would try to get the sole thicknesses the same, but I would have, you know, I'd be testing one shoe on my right foot and a different shoe on my left foot because it allowed me to see if, you know, was the break across the vamp still going to be the same? Was it going to irritate me up around the collar? And it was a way to just gather more information. So I wasn't even always using a pair of shoes. It might even be two different shoes. I'll tell you, the people who must have watched you running must have had quite a chuckle seeing you trying out all this stuff. Like, I can't even imagine like seeing someone. I know they were probably very comfortable shoes, but they still look like dress shoes. A lot of them, yeah. at least. So it must have been a very interesting watching you pass. Yeah, by. it was fun, you know, and then I think that kind of passed to the culture. As the company grew, we hired more people in the product team and other people, um, you know, would do similar things. Maybe not necessarily running, but, you know, there would be oftentimes that people would have two different shoes on so they could test different things. So what was the motivation of leaving this company that you'd spent a long time at and you done very interesting work? and very tied into what you were doing and had a passion in personally to go to this new venture Vibram, which even now it's kind of has its own subculture, but then it must, it must've been very small. It was, you know, I knew the family that owned the brand uh, that owned the Vibram brand. And, and some people say Vibram, by the way, I always said Vibram and, and some people here would read it as Vibram or say Vibram. And I think when you answer the phone, when they answer that, they might even answer Vibram now, but but the founder of the company was a man named Vitali Bramani in Italy who created the first rubber soles used for mountaineering boots. Um, and he, um, you know, did that invention kind of out of necessity. He was guiding an, uh, an expedition where some people got trapped and they couldn't make a safe descent because their equipment didn't allow it. And he had the idea to make uh, – soles made from rubber for mountaineering boots. And, and that's how that company was born. I knew that the third generation of that uh, founder, uh, his grandchildren, and I had used a lot of Vibram soles in our rock ports, um, both the rubber soles as well as some of the blown EVA type midsoles, um, even uh, EVA type outsoles. So I was pretty familiar with the brand and the product and a little bit with the company and they were interested in starting a U.S. company prior to the starting of Vibram USA. The business was managed by a licensee called Quaybog Corporation here in the United States, but they wanted to, they wanted to establish their own um, entity here in the United States and ask them if I would help them do that. And then eventually, you know, with the idea that, you know, we might merge the Quaybog Corporation or what actually ended up happening is we, Vibram ended up buying Quaybot. Okay. And then did, did they get acquired by New Balance? Did uh, Vibram get acquired? I think, yeah. Cause like, I no, see no, it's, an, it's an independent it's on New company. Balance shoes? So, yeah. Oh, so okay. when, when we started Vibram USA, um, we, you know, we were exclusively designing, producing um, sole platforms for other companies. And uh, even though the brand was quite well known, it didn't have distribution on a lot of different companies. And so we opened businesses with, you know, we started to make the sole platforms for companies like Timberland and the North Face. At one point, we even had, I think we had five uh, platforms that we designed and, and produced for Nike. 
Um, so even, you know, companies with great resources, but Vibram was known as a, you know, really good, um, sophisticated, innovative, te technologically savvy uh, company that just focused on souls. And so, um, so that's how, you know, the business here in the U.S. was established. Um, the, the relationship with New Balance that you mentioned actually came about a little bit later when we launched the Five, Finger, Five Fingers business, um, and there's a, more of a story to that. One of the things that I, I wanted to do to give the idea of natural running a little more clout was to, you know, even though we were producing Vibram Five Fingers at the time, I, I knew that that shoe wasn't going to necessarily appeal to everybody. So we reached out to Merrill, which is a, a great brand and a uh, division of Wolverine. Um, and we reached out to New Balance and offered to create more minimal um, platforms for them uh, in a you know, traditional closed toe construction that they could launch alongside what we were doing with Vibram Five Fingers so that we could give the idea a little bit more uh, credibility. And it seems like it would also allow you to even be more B2C, where it seems like earlier on in the company's history, you're much more B2B. That's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a good branded component, maybe not quite at the level of a Gore-Tex, which, you know, had probably a little more brand or name recognition. But it was it, in the right circles, you know, it definitely had an outstanding reputation, of course, still does today. But I always felt like the brand could be more than just a, a component on, on footwear. And it was actually the owner of the company in Italy who had kind of discovered this idea of a prototype of five fingers and had purchased the rights to that concept um, and that's, that's how, you know, five fingers ended up becoming a Vibram finished good. And I'll tell you, has there ever been a more useful marketing campaign that you did not like set out with than the born to run book in terms of kind of like launching this product? Into the yeah, that, that's also a funny story. There was, so at the time, you know, when the owner of the company in Italy had purchased this, the rights to this product, and he was working on a few different um, footwear projects kind of outside the company. And he asked if it, I would be interested in, in launching something like this in the U.S. And I said, well, there's just the one product that I'm interested in, which was the Five Fingers product. Well, selfishly, there was a whole reason for that, which is I, would, I had had my first knee surgery, you know, the first time I'd ever had kind of a, a little more severe injury. And I was in the gym a whole lot trying to do PT and, and exercises to recover from this surgery. And a friend of mine back in Colorado who I'd known for years had asked if I'd ever done any training barefoot. This is before, you know, anybody really was talking about any, any kind of barefoot training. And, um, I approached my gym and of course the gym didn't want me to be barefoot in the gym for a variety of different reasons, which I respected, but I thought, Oh, how cool I can take this product. And it's almost like being barefoot and I can use it in the gym. And so I started to use it. This is before we launched the business, of course, as just an idea, very not, not dramatically different from my days at Rockport, you know, running at lunchtime. So I'd be in the gym working out in my, 
five fingers. And I thought, wow, this is really great. And I'm, you know, I can feel my body just feels different. And I'm getting stronger and I'm using muscles in my feet, my toes, my lower legs in a different way. And kind of on a whim, I decided to try to, you know, just go for a little two or three mile run in the shoes. And when I did, I noticed that it forced me because there really wasn't very much underfoot. It forced me to land more up on the ball of my foot, engage the muscles in the medial arch, the lower leg, soleus muscle. And when I did, and I kind of ran a little slower, it was like that recovery run that you do during a speed workout between reps. And by running like that, it was like, wow, you know, I'm really not experiencing any knee pain whatsoever. And, and I realized at that point that the shoe could be a really important form trainer. And I also realized the benefits of of getting, you know, back to something that, you know, we would end up calling natural running. And, um, and so that was kind of the, the birth of that idea. Now, did you know it was going to be chronicled in that book? Or was that just something that you were delighted to see after the fact? Um, at the time, um, you know, I, I had given the way that that happened was, I had given the shoes to a gentleman named Ted McDonald. Ted was a, one of the only other people that I knew that actually did any running and he went totally barefoot and barefoot Ted, Ted. the infamous. So Ted, uh, you know, we got together and I gave him some five fingers to try. He loved the product. I said, look, I was planning to run Boston. I don't think I'm going to be ready this year, but if you can come out and run in the shoes, I'll pay for your flight and your hotel. So Ted did, came out, ran in the shoes. The idea was we'd take a few pictures of Ted, you know, running in the marathon, um, issue a press release, you know, maybe something like that. Well, sure enough, it got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. We were on the cover of the Wall Street Journal about three weeks after Ted ran the race. And, and you know, that kind of helped launch the company into the into the public domain a little bit. Ted, meanwhile, carried on from Boston. He ended up going down to Mexico, ran in the race that's, you know, famously chronicled in the book Born to Run. Uh, Chris McDougall, who wrote that book, sees Ted and said, what do you have on your feet? And Ted explains the story. And then Chris ended up calling uh, me and we had a few different conversations which long before this was a book, by the way, it was an article that I think he wrote in Men's Health. And so that's kind of, you know, what I was, you know, when he was interviewing me on the phone, we had a couple of different phone conversations. It was just about this article that he was doing in Men's Health. I had no idea that eventually that would turn into a book. Wow, that is awesome. That's such, that's such a crazy story. And I think that's just one of those iconic running books that's always going to be around uh, for a variety of different reasons, but that's obviously a major part of it. So again, so you had good things going. You're at this, this innovative shoe company. You're making things happen. Exciting things are underway. And then here you go. You bounce again. You, you start your own firm. So what was the thing? Yeah, so, there? you know, I was at Vibram for 11 years. We grew the company from basically from scratch to a very, you know, much, much larger, you know, much larger, very good, profitable company. Um, when I started, it was one other person myself. By the time I left, you know, it was over a hundred people in the U S company and it was a really difficult decision, but I also knew that I wanted to make other types of products 
Um, I didn't want to just continue to make the, the five finger shoes. And I continued to experiment with other different types of ideas. And to, to really do that right, I knew I probably couldn't do it staying with Vibram because, you know, in respect to the company and its customers, you know, we didn't want to do anything that would put us in competition with the, with our customers. So, I mean, it was a hard decision because I really love the company and it's a great company. Um, but I made the decision to resign from the company. I stayed on for about six months. Then I took a little time off, um, and thought about what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to explore this concept of natural running deeper. And so with, with Topo Athletic, I kind of set up these ideas about what, you know, would be the fundamental values or characteristics of the products that we would make. And I defined that as allowing us to have shoes that would, number one, fit probably differently than anybody else out there at the time. It'd be very roomy in the toe box, but fits snug in the waist and secure in the heel. A lot of times when you have a shoe that is roomy for your toes to spread and splay, you don't get that same sense of security through the midfoot and in the heel. The shoe can feel a little sloppy or disconnected. Well, I, I like that very connected feeling. I like a shoe to feel like it's a part of my body, so I want that you know secure fit through that area. But it's really important to have room for my toes to spread and splay because I use them for balance, agility, a sense of control, power, all of those things. So that was going to be number one, this, this unique fit. Two was that I didn't want to be exclusively zero drop because I also had seen how some people had a difficult time transitioning from you know a traditional drop shoe, whether it's 12 or 14 millimeters down to zero, a lot of times people would make that transition and they would injure the soleus muscle or have Achilles problems or, you know, different issues could, could come up. And so I wanted to have shoes that allowed them to transition a little easier. So making shoes with five millimeters of drop, three millimeter drop and zero drop. And that the idea would be not that we would be exclusively minimal platforms. I mean, I think after, my Vibram days. And when I started Topo, people thought that we would only be minimal shoes. And, and while I love minimal shoes and I like, you know, a, a, a thin platform in a lot of different situations, I know that it's not always the right thing for me personally, and it's not always the right thing for everybody else. So I wanted to have, you know, a couple different thicknesses, cushioning levels that, that people could use depending on the workout or how they were training. Right, like you can get a two-centimeter stack height and still get a zero-drop yeah. shoe. That's right. And so, yeah. and so, you know, I still wanted to have some feedback from my environment, from the ground, because I think that's really important to try to make sure that, you know, you know where your body is in space and you know how you're landing and how it's feeling. I don't want a platform that's so thick or so insulating from your environment that you you lose touch with the ground. So even though we do make some platforms that are a little thicker, you know, we always try to keep in mind that you need to be able to feel your, your, where your body is in space and where you are in relation to the ground. And when you're starting a company like this, and not that you have to think about it only when you start a company or in the early stages, um, but how do you balance the idea of having a niche market versus kind of appealing to a broad spectrum of people? 
How do you balance? You know, those I don't two? really worry about the broad spectrum. I, I really can't. I can't think about things like that. I have to think more about, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I think you use yourself as kind of, you know, what are the problems I need to solve for myself? Are there more people like me? Probably, you know, so just like, you know, that experiment in the gym or, you know, wanting to have a lighter, more comfortable dress shoe. You know, this was the same kind of thing where I'd always suffered, you know, different problems, even though running shoes are supposed to be light and comfortable. You know, that's not always the case. A lot of times I found running shoes pinched my toes together. I blistered. I had, uh, you know, different problems and I wanted to solve some of those problems. And so I tend to focus on a, a tighter, narrower market. I try to say, okay, for somebody who's doing tempo work, what's the best kind of product we can make for that experience? For somebody who's doing a longer distance run on trails, what's the best kind of product? What kind of trail surfaces? Is it dry? Is it wet? Is it mostly rock? Is it dirt? Is it dirt trail? You know, and then we try to think about how we deliver the best possible experience to that end use. I can't think about, you know, the mass market because I don't think that's that's productive. You know, you're not really solving. I'm not in any way solving a problem that way. I'm, I'm more interested in the specific user and how I can make that experience better for them. So what are the things that you're trying to do now in the short term? So one of the things that we've done, um, you know, this past season, we, we work really hard on improving our trail line. And so we're in the process. We're going to be launching three new trail shoes all the way, all, all three of them, by the way, with a Vibram outsole. Um, and so we have three really terrific new trail shoes that offer what I think are, is going to be um, different rides, different feelings um, for different kinds of environments. So I'm excited to bring these shoes to market. One of the shoes is a waterproof shoe. Two of the shoes use a, uh, an ESS rock plate to protect you from, you know, stone bruising. All three of the shoes are made from dual or multi-density injected EVA. All have Vibram outsoles. All have ortholite footbeds. All have fully gusseted tongues. All are super lightweight. Our waterproof shoe is actually the lightest waterproof trail shoe available anywhere in the world. Um, and so... That's why, you know, it's that kind of stuff that gets me excited about product creation. Then you feel like you're making something that's really useful to somebody and in something that's, you know, maybe the best part of their day. Maybe that 45 minutes of trail running that I get at lunch or after work, that might be the best part of my day. And if I can make a product that makes that experience even better, that's the most rewarding thing. That's the reason, you know, I love I love this business. I love it. And I'll tell you what, I've definitely seen, um, if I had to compare like the road runners I know versus the trail runners I know who wear topo, I feel like it has, I don't know the reason for it, but I feel like I know more trail runners who wear topo than road runners. If I had to categorize them into, you know, into, into each well, category. Well, I think, you know, that's always a challenge for us too, because, you know, not everybody always has trails accessible to them. So, you know, this season right. we've worked really hard on, we're in the middle of it right now, you know, trying to figure out how we can deliver a better experience to roadrunners too, in the same way that we built these new trail shoes. So, you know, it, it's a constant, it's a constant challenge. And there are a lot of people who make really good product. 
um, you know, a lot of our competitors are, are terrific. And I think it's always, you know, this is where you have to live and talk to and surround yourself with those users all the time, because the best ideas are not born in an office. They're born, you know, somewhere out there on a road or a trail or in a conversation with, with your customers. Yeah, that's a good point. And I really appreciate you diving into this because a lot of people who listen to the show are not only active runners who balance running with the rest of their lives, but a lot of them are entrepreneurial or they're small business owners and they have, you know, while they might not be in the running shoe business or even the running business, they have similar issues or challenges or opportunities in their own business. It is very, it is interesting to see how people juggle these same conversations in their specific genres. Yeah. I mean, I love being a small company to be honest, because I get to work on lots of different things. You know, when you're a big company and I've, as I mentioned, you know, being part of Reebok and, you know, we were nearly a $3 billion company, you know, you you tend to get focused on kind of a narrow niche, but I get to work with all different people and all different aspects of our business the thing I love, though, most of all, is really getting down to product and being able to work hands-on on product, hands-on with fit trials, with, uh, you know, gathering information, customer experiences, what they like or don't like about a particular prototype. Th- that kind of stuff is where it really gets to be fun. That's fantastic. See, you might have to come out and do it, do it again, what you did in 1992. You could go set out, like, the... Set the world master's marathon <laughs> record in Topo shoes. See, that has to be like the next yeah, I don't know. Campaign. I bet that bar is pretty low. I've seen some of those times. I don't think there's I don't think there are any world records or national records. There's probably there's probably somebody faster in my own town right now. So, you know, those things are hard to come by. There you go. Tony, you could do it. I interviewed a woman last week, Jenny Hitchings, who started seriously running at age 40 and now at age 55 just set the american american record in her age group 55 to 59 in the 10 mile and she ran 10120 and she started seriously running at that's age great 40. you can that's do it that's great man. i love stories like that yes yeah, great so she actually did the same thing in the 5k two months wow, earlier that's terrific good for her yeah so thank you so much for coming on the show this has been so interesting it's nice to finally talk to the person behind these stories I'd heard about for oh, years. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here and feel free to reach out anytime. Anybody who wants to learn more about Topo, you can go visit our website at topoathletic.com. One of the things that we try to do on that website, you know, it's not always about the shoes. It's about how you take care of your body. There's a lot more in your own underlying body biomechanics. And we try to offer educational resources there that help you to you know, stay as fit and strong as possible. So that's really key to a healthy, good running experience, probably much more so than the, the shoes you wear. Well said. And you're, you're living proof of that. Well, we'll, we'll see. All right. Thanks Talk so later, much, Tony. Matt. So Appreciate much. it. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tony, for coming on the show. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Also, thank you for agreeing to do a giveaway with one of your shoes. I shouldn't even say agreeing. I didn't ask. For this to be the case, but hey, we're going to do a giveaway. The person who wins the giveaway can choose any shoe in the Topo Athletic line, and that's the shoe you're going to get. So you have a lot to choose from, and I have a I have a pair. Like I said in the show, the ST2s, which are kind of 
minimalist running shoes for sure. I use them for tempo runs and track workouts and uh, I like them. I like them a lot. So um, thank you, Tony, for coming on the show. Thank you, Mercury Mile, for sponsoring the show. Go to mercurymile.com. If you like running gear and running goodies, you're going to get some good stuff and who doesn't like that? Finally, thank you, the listener, for listening to the show. I really appreciate it and thank you for tagging me every time you share the show. It really does warm my heart. I greatly appreciate it. So, With all that being said, I hope you're doing great and happy running.